It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. The less your business spends, the more margin you keep. But today, everything costs more. So smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one proven platform, helping you reduce IT costs, maintenance costs, and manual errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move to NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Head to NetSuite.com slash earnings right now. NetSuite.com slash earnings. Hello and welcome to What You Missed This Week. I'm Joe Weisenthal. This is the podcast that has the best and most interesting interviews from the Daily Market Close Show that I co-anchor with Scarlett Fu, Caroline Hyde, and Romaine Bostic on Bloomberg TV. It's called What You Miss. Our aim is to take you beyond the headlines and bring you unique perspectives on the week's top stories and, well, those that you may have just missed. It's the perfect way to kick off your weekend. This week, I sat down with Democratic Senator Elizabeth Warren for a wide-ranging interview. The Massachusetts senator is exploring a White House bid and is centering her presidential pitch around the idea of making the economy work for everyone, particularly middle-class families. Senator Warren told me big systemic changes are needed, but she still calls herself a capitalist. We started off by talking about her wealth tax, which has already drawn criticism, and I asked her if the tax proposal was more about raising revenue for the government or simply about ameliorating inequality. I want to talk about the wealth tax, but I just want to push back a little bit on what the centerpiece is. The centerpiece is that Washington is broken. And right now, it works great if you're a billionaire. It works great if you are a giant multinational corporation. It works great for the wealthy and the well-connected, and it is not working for the rest of America. And the question is, why not? And it's because those people with a lot of money by a lot of political influence in Washington. And year by year, year by year, year by year, they've gone to Washington for decades now and said, hey, listen, can we just change the rules just on this part? Can we just, just a little bit? And then how about just a little bit more and just a little bit more until now we live in an America where the tippy top, one-tenth of one percent of America now has about as much wealth as 90% of America. And the problem with that is that we need those folks just to pay a fair share in taxes so we can make investments so that Washington works, so that government works to create opportunities for everybody else. So the primary benefit of the tax is a making the system work better. It's yeah. not about raising revenue, per se. Well, it's, it's not about it's all those what pieces. critics would say, punishing the rich. It's about making democracy work That's, better. It's about making democracy work better so that we make this economy work better. Look, I think it's great. You were successful. God bless. But part of the deal is you pay back so the next kid gets a chance to be successful, and the kid after that, and the kid after that, and the kid after that. And that's the part that's not working in America today. And that's why we have to make some big systemic changes. So when you ask me about the centerpiece, I'm going to say it actually starts with an anti-corruption bill that tries to reduce the influence of money in Washington. 
And from there, we swing into accountable capitalism, right? You know about this right. piece. Well, and into a wealth tax, into making this economy work for everyone. This is interesting you talked about accountable capitalism, because I'm sure there are a lot of Bloomberg readers, Bloomberg viewers that think of you as a socialist. Whatever, I'm sure that's what, what yeah. they would think. Elizabeth Warren, socialist. That being said, at one point, I think that was mainly seen as a pejorative in American politics. But there are more people who identify as such positively. What do you think about that term? And what would you say to people within the Democratic Party that say socialism is a, um, a good path forward? Look, I believe in capitalism. I see the wealth that can be produced. But let's be really clear. Capitalism without rules is theft. Encouraging companies to build their business models on cheating people, that's not capitalism. That's not competition in the marketplace. That's not producing consumer surplus. So what I believe is capitalism with serious rules. And that means rules where everybody gets a chance to play. Speaking of rules, one of the a criticism of a wealth tax is that it would be really hard to enforce. People have ways to hide how much wealth they have. It's difficult to measure. They could move wealth internationally. How much would a successful implementation of a wealth tax essentially require global cooperation so that people can't easily just shuffle their assets? Okay, so let's start with the fact that the way this is written says your wealth wherever held. So moving it to one of the islands or moving it to Switzerland, that's not going to get you out from underneath the tax. There's no advantage to taking this, uh, your diamonds or your art or your yacht outside the United States. Part two, remember, the international uh, uh, scene on taxes is changing dramatically. Starting in about 2010, started changing the laws so that companies are more cooperative now with each other in terms of identifying the assets held within their areas. Third part is this bill has really serious enforcement. It says, we get it, rich people come with their own independent armies of lawyers to try to figure out how to game the system. They've been doing that for a long time. But this says, let's be smart about that. We will have a much stepped up audit schedule for these folks Mm. and you enforce the law and look think about the alternative are we really going to be in america that says you know it's hard to get the rich to abide by the law so we're just not going to try to impose rules that we otherwise think are right we can we can enforce this remember the kind of money we're talking about here estimate is it's about 2.75 trillion dollars over the next 10 years. That's money we could spend on child care. That's money we could spend to reduce the student loan debt burden. That's a good down payment on a Green New Deal. I want to ask you a question about the Democratic Party as a whole. It feels like there's just much more enthusiasm to talk about taxes, to talk about raising taxes with a confidence that you don't hear in the past, and also talk about some pretty big spending programs. What's going on, and why do you think it is that the Democratic Party feels more comfortable about taxing and spending, which used to be sort of a uh, criticism of the party that party leaders shied away from? You're saying, why does this party believe that everybody ought to pay a fair share? including the rich? Why does this party believe that we need to be making more investments so that all of our children get opportunities, not just the children of the rich? 
The answer is that reality is finally catching up with elected officials in Washington, at least on the Democratic side. These are the things America wants. People are living this. You know, this is the part I find so interesting. When I talk to folks in Washington, they're like, whoa, taxes, what does this mean? Let's talk about this. I go out and talk about this with people across this country, and boy, they get it. They get how the rules are rigged right now to help the wealthy and the well-connected, and they are ready for change. They get it. They may not know the numbers, but they get it right now. The folks, the one-tenth of one percent, do you know how much they pay in taxes every year, or will pay in taxes this year? About 3.2 percent of their net wealth. The 99 percent, how much will they be paying? About 7.2 percent. In other words, more than double what the richest Americans are paying. Folks across this country get it, and they want to see change. Let's, sh- let's shift gears for a second to uh, health care, which is going to be now, a huge topic is there room for private health insurance in your vision of the ideal American health care system? So let's start with the battle we're having right now and talk about the things we need to be doing, because I don't want to lose sight of this. Okay. It's, it's good to talk about our overall goal, and here's our overall goal. This is what distinguishes Democrats from Republicans. Democrats believe health care is a basic human right, and we fight for basic human rights. Our obligation is to make sure that everybody gets coverage at the lowest possible cost to all of us. So what does that mean? Right now, it means fighting the Republicans who are trying to sabotage the Affordable Care Act. We've got this lawsuit going on down in Texas where the Republicans are trying to do what they couldn't do with the votes. And that is trying to repeal the Affordable Care Act, to make it okay to discriminate against people with pre-existing conditions, to cut off access to health care for millions of Americans. So job number one is to defend the Affordable Care Act. Job number two is to make changes where we need to make them right now. Changes to hold insurance companies accountable when they're trying to cheat people, when they're trying to scam people. Changes right now in what's happening with drugs, uh, prescription drugs. Uh, We need to lower the cost of prescription drugs. One in four Americans say they can't take drugs that are prescribed to them because they can't afford to pay for them. I have, for example, here a proposal for generic drugs, which are about 90 percent of all the prescriptions that people fill, to be able to bring those costs down to just a nominal cost. And the third, how do we get universal coverage? Medicare for all. Lots of paths for how to do that. But we know where we are aiming, and that is that every American has health care at a price that they can afford and that the overall costs in the system are held as low as possible. But right now, your vision for Medicare for all, would it include would it all be a public option or would it include uh, private insurance? So right now we've got multiple There are multiple bills on the floor in the United States Senate. I've signed on to Medicare for All. I've signed on to another one that gives an option for buying into Medicaid. There are different ways we can get there. But the key has to be always keep the center of the bullseye in mind, and that is affordable health care for every American. I want to go back to something you said about revenues raised from your wealth tax. You talked mm-hmm. about how that could help for child care and a Green New Deal and so forth. There's a growing belief and a growing movement within uh, the Democratic Party that this concept of like 
being restricted by, oh, we have to pay for it in some way doesn't necessarily make sense. That we shouldn't be afraid of deficits and the debt, that the debt has gone up a lot. It hasn't had negative ramifications. Do you share this view that we don't have to be as scared of deficit spending, that not everything has to be paid for dollar for dollar like we've kind of... So I've opposed PAYGO, which is part of what you're talking about is restraint, because I've watched the Republicans. Look, the Republicans say, oh, we want to pay... Uh, We want to have a war but not raise taxes to pay for it. Who cares about the the national debt? Or they say we're going to give away uh, one point, as it turns out, $1.9 trillion. Don't have to worry about the national debt. It's only when we're talking about the things that go to hardworking families that suddenly the Republicans seem to get religion about the national debt. Now, look, even under current uh, uh, the monetary theories, Debt matters. There comes a point where debt matters. But what I care about is that we need to rethink our system in a way that genuinely is about the the investments that pay off over time. Think about a federal government right now that treats uh, if you spend $10 million on a building as it's the same as if we took $10 million out in the middle of the street and burned it. Rather than say, wait a minute, at the end of the day, you've got an asset worth $10 million. Same kind of thing on educating our children. Treating it just as an expense to educate the next generation, you know, it not only makes no sense from a values perspective, it actually makes no sense from an economic perspective. We know, for example, that the GI Bill really paid off over time. Not only for the GIs who got an education under that proposal, but also for the entire economy. So I believe very strongly that we have got to shift how we spend money in Washington. We need to make those expenditures more in line with our values. It should be less about billionaires getting to hang on to that last 2% of their bazillion dollars and more about high-quality child care for all of our kids or reducing the student loan debt burden so people have a chance to buy a home or start a business. Something that really interested me in your uh, launch video on your website is you specifically pointed out the deteriorating household wealth conditions of black families in this country. Working families today face a lot tougher path than my family did. And families of color face a path that is steeper and rockier. And I'm curious how you're thinking about, as the campaign goes on, connecting a progressive economic message with issues of racial justice. So this has been an issue I've really worked on pretty much my whole life, has been what's happening to American families. Why is it that people work harder and harder and harder, and yet for millions, the road just keeps getting rockier and rockier And for African-Americans, it's rockier and steeper yet. And the data just show this over and over and over. So I have been writing about this, talking about this for a long time, how these two intersect. Let me just give you one, just one piece of this and how it works, just to think about it. So uh, homeownership is the number one way that middle-class families build wealth. And for a long time, America subsidized homeownership for white families, but redlined black families out of that, affirmatively discriminated against black families having an opportunity to build up 
that family wealth. And one of the things we've seen is the cumulative effect of that generation by generation. Today, people all across this country are struggling with housing costs, black and white, but the path for African Americans is tougher, both because of generational discrimination, that means generation by generation, they keep starting at a lower point at a face a bigger gap and bigger discrimination. This is the kind of thing, as a nation, we have a responsibility to stop, to acknowledge it, and to say we are prepared to take steps to fight back. All right, quick last question. Turning to foreign policy real quickly, President Warren, what would you uh, be doing right now in Venezuela? In Venezuela. So the first thing we start with is Maduro is a dictator. He's terrible. He's caused terrible harm to his own people. But we have to be very careful about rattling a saber on military intervention. Uh, You don't rattle those sabers unless you're pretty darn sure you can back it up and need to think about whether or not that's the kind of path we want to follow in South America. Um, I believe right now that our principal effort should go towards supporting the Venezuelan people and not imposing policies that put even greater injury on them. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. Then MSCI Chairman and CEO Henry Fernandez joined Scarlett and Caroline for an exclusive interview. Fernandez, who's been critical of optimism surrounding what U.S. and China trade talks could accomplish, came on to talk about this week's negotiations between Washington and Beijing, emerging markets, as well as the crisis in Venezuela. They started off by asking him where he thought the two sides could be most productive in crafting a trade deal. I think the, uh, the issue of purchases by the Chinese of American goods uh, is clearly the easiest one, whether farm products or energy products or whatever. I think the thorny issues are clearly the issue of transfer of, of technology and secondly, the access to the market on a level playing field by U.S. competitors into China. But I think an area that is often neglected uh, by observers is, that, uh, is, is compliance because the U.S. administration is extremely focused on making sure that promises that are made by the Chinese government are actually implemented, Mm -hmm. which in the past they haven't been. You know, a lot of promises were made at the WTO, and that didn't happen. There's been a lot of promises, a lot of talk about opening up China, certainly to foreign investment. This is something that affects your business significantly. What are the worst-case and best-case scenarios for you if these talks go well or indeed fall apart? Well, I happen to believe that the, the problems of the world in trade, there's a lot of nationalism, a lot of uh, slowdown in uh, cross-border trade, are not yet affecting the flow of capital mm. between countries and regions of the world. If anything, many countries around the world are opening up to more access to capital, China and Saudi Arabia being two examples. So we haven't seen yet any backlash on that 
in, in terms of the openness of the world trading systems, you know, in access to capital. So we, co- we believe that that will continue to be the case and it would actually be accelerated in the case of China for a lot of reasons. One is, is a counter you know, balance to the difficulties of trade. So if you open up the capital account, it's a lot easier. Mm-hmm. Capital is more fungible than, than competitors and, uh, and direct foreign investment. Secondly, uh, Xi Jinping needs financial uh, capital to, uh, to uh, fund many of the new economy, software and technology and uh, healthcare and other things like that. And three, Xi Jinping is more established in power, so he can take a little more risk. So we're very optimistic that the opening will continue, and that's what we see in the ground. That's what we see with our clients, and that's what we see with the regulators. Now, you're getting ready for the next stage of continued inclusion of China A shares into your indexes. The announcement is supposed to come sometime at the end of February. And, of course, we know that there's this trade deadline of March 1st. From where you sit, how quickly will Beijing open up its capital markets to foreigners? Is this a sticking point, do you think, in the trade talks? Do you think it's influenced by how the trade talks go? It doesn't appear to be part of the negotiations. I'm sure the Chinese are saying, look, we're going to open up to more uh, capital from America and from other parts of the world. We'll particularly open up for uh, the participants, you know, uh, asset managers and banks and hedge funds and all of that. Uh, for what we see, it's not affecting uh, negatively, it's actually positively affecting the opening up of the uh, capital markets. And we're seeing that already. We're seeing the, uh, the merger. They're, trying, they're doing a consultation on the merger between the, the QFI accounts and the RQFI, which are two mechanisms to get into China. They're trying to liberalize that in a way that is better. You saw, obviously, the improvements that have been made in Stock Connect, not only in Hong Kong, but they're trying to do a Stock Connect with Germany, Stock Connect with the uh, UK. So those are uh, areas that you can see. Also, they are intent in opening up uh, the uh, futures market, yes. particularly the equity index futures market, and we're trying to participate in that as well. So uh, every indication, you know, whether it's verbal or in action, we're beginning to see that. I hope that you know, if there is a, a breakdown in the discussions with the U.S., that doesn't affect any of that. I don't, I don't think it will, but we have to see it in a few uh, weeks' time. You're talking about almost the supply side here, the side of China being willing to open up. But what about the big institutions that you work with and your clients? How about the demand yeah. side? When we see the fall apart of Huawei on the back of political ramifications yeah. and, and indeed investigations, we've got the concern of how much just China lost in terms of market capitalization last year. Is the demand still really there? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think, uh, you know, there are contrarian investors that uh, buy when there is fear uh, and sell when there's greed, right? So uh, China is clearly depressed. Uh, I think the short-term prospects, meaning a few months, uh, are not that great because China is slowing down. But China is also putting an incredible amount of stimulus into its economy. Yeah. And there is a lot of pundits that believe that in the second half of the year, you're going to start seeing that reflected in the economy and potentially in the, uh, in the financial markets. Uh, I think the other thing to, to bear in mind is that in the Emerging Market Index, China is already about 30 percent of the mm-hmm. index, obviously mostly made up of uh, Chinese companies that are listed outside of China. What we're now talking about is the opening up of the Asia market, the domestic uh, listed companies, and that you know, is very promising, but it'll take time. The other thing that we're doing is to help investors in a variety of things. ESG is a big part of what we do now. We create ratings for companies. We create indexes with ESG. 
So we're trying to help investors understand what it looks like to imbe- investing in Chinese companies on the basis of ESG criteria, as well as the uh, normal market cap indices. Right, but your bread and butter is in market cap indexes. And last June, you added Argentina and Saudi Arabia to your EM index. Uh, since then, we've seen the Argentine peso plummet, um, done very badly in terms of global losses. Saudi Arabia mired in political scandal as well. Are you confident that these two countries represent what it means to be EM? I think so, because uh, from our perspective, because what we care at at MSCI is the free flow of capital in and out. Can you buy? Can you sell without any restrictions, Mm -hmm. capital controls, you know, settlement restrictions, cost of the restrictions and the like? It's up to our clients to determine uh, whether they they want to overweight or underweight their investments into the country. So we've been watching Argentina very carefully, like a hawk, to make sure that there's no reversal of what they have promised. Uh, obviously, the inclusion doesn't happen until the end of May. Uh, and if they continue with this approach, we'll include them. If not, we're going to react very negatively. Saudi Arabia is completely open, you know, to, uh, based on what they've said. Uh, obviously, they still need some opening up to do. But in terms of what it is required to be an emerging marketing uh, investment. We were just hearing from a politician discussing the ramifications of what's going on in Venezuela. Can you ever envisage Venezuela, if we do see DC regime changes and opening up the economy to a certain extent, becoming part of the emerging market index as well? Well, as a Latino, I would love to see them, you know, come to the emerging market index. They have a long way to go. Uh, the economy is in an incredibly pitiful state. Uh, a huge amount of reconstruction will need to take place, you know, and that will include the market infrastructure and the financial infrastructure of the country. Uh, attracting you know investors and the like, uh, so it's uh, it's it's a it's a good aspiration. You know, obviously we have a lot to go b- b- before that happens politically, uh, but it'll be a long time. How many years out might that be? Oh, a long time. You know, decades, decades. probably, uh, because uh, the the country is in real dire straits, as you know, right? On the upside. There are countries that you're looking at increasing the weighting of because of political reform, the likes of Brazil. Any other countries that you think you could add weightings to? Well, we're doing a consultation on Kuwait, you know, obviously a small market, but a very open market, you know, parliamentary system, uh, which is uh, uh, not the norm in that part of the world. And uh, we'll be making a decision in June about whether it goes into the emerging market index or not. You know, longer term, we're looking at other countries, obviously Vietnam, but it's still far, you know, mm-hmm. from getting there and, and the like. And our focus right now is clearly China because mm-hmm. uh, we have a, also a lot of steps to take. You know, the current consultation is about 20 percent of the of the large caps. We also have to deal with the mid caps uh, of the Asia market. And, uh, and obviously Saudi Arabia so far is on course to, uh, to be included. When you talk about uh, and you get the results of that consultation, come back and speak to us again. I will. Then we wrapped up things with Eswar Prasad, Brookings Institute Senior Fellow and Cornell University Senior Professor of Trade Policy and Professor of Economics. Eswar came on ahead of President Trump's meeting with Chinese Vice Premier Liu He and shared his thoughts on the potential downsides of President Trump meeting with President Xi Jinping. China wants a deal. Trump wants a deal. What could possibly go wrong? One barrier to the two sides striking a deal is the fact that many of the promises and commitments that China seems to be willing to make, including on issues like market access, protection of intellectual property rights, and so on. The hardliners in the Trump administration don't quite buy those promises. 
But by agreeing to um, potentially meet with President Xi Jinping, certainly uh, Mr. Trump has made it likely that there will be some sort of deal that's going to be announced. The big question is what the contours of the deal are going to be like. It's going to be something that will allow Mr. Trump to declare a win, I presume. But is it going to be comprehensive and long-lasting? That I find harder to imagine. Ishwa, where do you think the balance of power now sits? We suddenly had a ramp up in the U.S. stock market. Perhaps there's a feeling of more buoyancy coming from President Trump. Meanwhile, Chinese data, there's a bit of a turnaround today, the slowdown easing in manufacturing, it would seem, certainly in the Manufacturing Purchases Managers Index. But still, it's sub 50. We're not seeing growth in China yet. China still faces some significant economic headwinds in the short term. Um, the overall GDP growth numbers don't look too bad, but certainly most other indicators like retail sales, industrial production, and most importantly, investment, uh, and even more importantly, private investment, don't look very good. And um, weak business and uh, consumer sentiment um, is being reflected in the indicators, and I think the trade war feeds into that uh, environment. On the other hand, while the U.S. economy and the U.S. stock market are doing well, uh, Trump is still, I think, uh, coping with the after effects of a shutdown battle that didn't go too well for him. Mm. So Trump really needs a win at this stage, which I think is why both sides really feel impelled to strike some sort of a deal, perhaps not a comprehensive one, but at least one that doesn't uh, allow tensions to escalate any further. Right. Allows them both to save face as well. You speak regularly, Ishwar, with Chinese officials. How well do they understand the president's MO and his endgame? I wonder how their understanding of the president has shifted and evolved over the last two years. That is one of the most complicated tasks facing the Chinese negotiators, how to read the Trump administration, because there are many players there and the relative importance, the relative uh, um, uh, influence of each of these players, the hardliners versus people like Mnuchin, and then the wild card, Trump himself, um, can go from one extreme to another. So at the moment, uh, we are facing a situation where Lighthizer, who's one of the, the U.S. Uh, trade representative, who's one of the hardliners on the Trump administration, is leading the negotiations, unlike previous negotiations that were led by Mr. Mnuchin. But certainly what uh, uh, Trump tweeted out this morning changes the dynamics very significantly because now it seems like a, there is an order from above to carve out a path towards a deal. And that's certainly a big opening that the Chinese are going to try to uh, work their way through. Relief, therefore, maybe for some investors out there. What about the economic situation that I'm seeing closer to where I stem from? I'm looking at Europe and it's still dismal. 0.2% growth in GDP today. Germany basically stagnating. Italy in basically recession. Ishwar, are we getting to any sort of tipping point when it comes to Europe? We've seen dovishness come from the Fed. Can we see any sort of support from a central bank or fiscal perspective in Europe? It's becoming increasingly likely that some sort of macroeconomic support is going to be needed. Now, um, the ECB, of course, um, has tried to um, uh, go it back and forth in terms of its uh, own pullback from its previous quantitative easing. Um, but the reality is that the core economy in the Eurozone is slowing, plus the uncertainties that are spilling over from Brexit uh, make it very unlikely that Europe is going to be much a driver of growth this year. And I think the key question is what can be done to support growth? And here again, sentiment, I think, is going to play a very big role with China slowing down, uh, with trade tensions between China and the U.S. still not at an even keel. Um, I think sentiment is very negative. So how to turn around that sentiment is going to be a key issue as well. And that's it for What You Missed This Week. If you like the show, make sure to subscribe and rate us at Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. 
You can catch our show every weekday from 3.30 to 5 p.m. on Bloomberg TV and from 4 to 5 p.m. on Twitter. Thanks for listening and have a great weekend. The Bloomberg Sustainable Business Summit returns to London on April 25th for a solution-driven look at the sustainable business and finance landscape, looking at the latest trends in ESG regulations, supply chain innovation and transition finance. Speakers include leaders from CDP, Emirates Environment Group, TNFD, C-Trace, COA and more. Summit advisors include City and Schneider Electric. Visit BloombergLive.com slash SBS 2024 to learn more.